0: that uh, Samir Sanjay is going to be speaking with us today. Uh, before he says anything, um, he doesn't have any financial interests. He reports he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of a product or device, and he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this, um, this talk he's going to give. And welcome to those who are joining us uh, by webinar. Um, uh, Dr. Sanjay was a uh, rolling stone before he came here. (laughs) He had quite an illustrious uh, training, um, starting with a a Bachelor of Science in Math at Chicago, and then a Master's in Statistics in Columbia, and PhD in Demography. Um, He's been assistant professor uh, in TDI and the Cancer Center um, since 2010, has some really uh, wonderful uh, analyses that he's done, um, one of which was a, a really nice paper in Health Affairs earlier this year uh, looking at um, effectiveness of um, cancer uh, management and treatment across different, um, the U.S. And, and Europe. And so um, he's been doing uh, really interesting work on the impact of uh, screening for lung cancer, but Uh, Now a foray and breast cancer is his domain. So thank you for speaking with us
1: Uh, Thanks Chris for the introduction is the volume okay Mm -hmm. great And a special thanks and and welcome to uh, people that are, are watching remotely and for you, for joining me. So today I'll be talking about new work on the progress and value of US <coughs> breast cancer care. Uh, I don't have any disclosures or uh, financial interests. And first let me acknowledge uh, my collaborators and funding, uh, my collaborators for this set of projects, uh, a longtime collaborator and fellow demographer, Iran Beltran Sanchez at Wisconsin, Hal uh, Sox, formerly here and now Corey. And Wan Yang, who is an undergraduate with our Health Affairs Project, who's now since graduated. And this work has been funded by my Synergy K. So let's get into the controversy. Breast cancer has been mired uh, in in controversy. It's perhaps the most controversial uh, cancer in the U.S., uh, at best, second to, to prostate cancer. And I think the controversy is really around three different areas. The first is whether or not breast cancer care is cost-effective. There was a paper that came out in 2012 by Philipson et al. that looked at breast cancer cancer in the US compared to that of eight selected European countries. And what they found is that between 1982 and 2005, the US averted 87,000 breast cancer deaths. What they also found was that gains in life expectancy were greater in the U.S. than in the selected European countries, and those greater survival gains translated to considerable value, so on the order of 170 billion dollars uh, in value for the U.S. So, breast cancer care in the U.S. was a, was a good bet; uh, it was a good value. Uh, we find something substantially different, as do lots of people that that say that. Uh, U.S. healthcare is considerably more expensive and no less effective than, than other countries. The next controversy is whether or not there's a benefit to screening. And the, the range of benefit levels are considerable. So CISNET evaluated randomized control trials and built uh, this information into their simulation models, their seven or eight simulation models, those simulation models determined that 28 to 65 percent, so a pretty wide range, of the decline in breast cancer mortality was due to historic screening. Nelson et al., in their work with the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, evaluated randomized control trials and found that the relative reduction in breast cancer mortality from screening was somewhere between 15 and 20 percent. And the Canadian National Breast Cancer. Uh, Breast screening study found no benefit at all. So the benefit is somewhere between 0 and 65% At least according to, to recent work, which is a pretty wide range And the third controversy has to do with who really has the authority The scientific, the moral, the ethical authority over breast cancer. Is it the public and their doctors or Does authority lie in scientists? And this authority uh, is perpetuated through the cycle of fear and the cycle of control. So fear, one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. I'm not a woman, but if I was, I wouldn't want to be one of those eight. Control, screening can save lives. I can control, I don't have to be one of those eight women. I have control uh, in my risk. So it's this cycle, this perpetual cycle of fear control that we see every October when the country turns pink. This cycle of fear and control fits into our societal notions of medical consumerism. More is better. More screening should be better at the population level. More often screening for me should be better. I'll do it annually instead of biannually. This medical consumerism, this notion of more is better, contrasts with concerns about rationing. Among 40 to 49-year-olds, only one life in 1904 will be saved. But who wants to be that one person? Of course I want to be that one person. So anything is, is, uh, is necessary to save that one life. So it's this competition between concerns about consumerism and rationing that feed into this authority over breast cancer. So where did this modern controversy come from? I think it's important for just spend a few minutes to talk about uh, where it started. And we need to start at the end of the 19th century. So uh, this is the age of pestilence. Louis Pasteur developed germ theory. Scientists began to understand germ theory's relation to infectious diseases and witnessed widespread progress against infectious diseases like cholera. And at the same time that there was progress against cholera, there was no progress against breast cancer, or cancer in general. Because cancer was thought of as a constitutional disease, that it was uh, present throughout the body. And so you had advertisements like this. This is advertising a sanitarium in Chatham, New York. Cancer and tumor are cured, no pain, no knife, for just $10 in 1880. uh, Dr. Mason would send you treatment either at home or at a sanitarium. And there's a testimonial from, from Mrs. Adams. She's cured. $10 in the 1880s is about $240 now, so it's still a good bet, although it never worked. Uh, because we thought cancer was, was a constitutional disease, <coughs> surgical treatment wasn't an option. <coughs> that changed uh, with Steven Paget's. Uh, so-called soy, soil, and soil seed and soil theory uh, that the seed, uh, a, a cancer tumor <coughs> with the right interaction with the soil, the right organ uh, started off as a small localized tumor and then subsequently metastasized. So this scientific progress gave way to the idea that surgical treatment might be an option if the surgery catches the tumor early. Uh, that that surgery became a viable option with the development of radical radical mastectomy uh, William Halstead at Johns Hopkins developed his technique of radical mastectomy whereby the uh, the cancerous breast was removed as well as lymph nodes in the armpits and musculature in the in the chest so that started the public health campaign <clears throat> whereby If cancer was detected early, surgery will cure it. So you saw posters like like this. uh, Early diagnosis, early treatment will save many lives. Now, it turns out that uh, Halstead looked at his patients. His patients continued to die. They just died of metastatic disease. (coughs) But this idea of early detection caught on. So. Uh, there was a lot of frustration over the stagnation of breast cancer mortality. The thought was that surgery would cure, but it didn't. So here is breast cancer mortality from 1930 all the way, actually, just to 1995, in which you see that it's just largely stagnant. Question? Yeah? So, I mean, Halstead's,
2: the survival of Halstead's patients that he did surgery on, he thought half of them were long term survivors free of breast cancer. You just told us that all the people died anyway of menacex disease, and
1: that's not true. Uh, I, so if I said all, I didn't mean all. Okay. Uh, what I've but read is that... you cured at
2: least half of them. <clears throat> you know, so I, I think it's about half of them were to survive, long-term survivors after doing surgery. So okay. he was able to cure half the people.
1: Great. Right. So uh, this is an important point of, of you know, what is curing and this dogmatic uh, belief that uh, that surgery will cure the... The population-level evidence suggests that, to the extent that there was surgery, surgery wasn't declining, uh, decreasing the population-level mortality rate.
2: Well, you don't have in there, like you know, you don't have 1880, you know, in 1890, where the mortality, and then Show and Holsed started operating in the 1895 rating, I mean, it just starts at 1930. But I think if you you can look at the patients who had patients who had surgery, you can have, you know, a higher cure rate mm-hmm. at that time.
1: Yeah. And let's save this point to the current because
2: uh,
1: it turns out that surgical treatment is one of the reasons why the U.S. is making progress now, which we'll find out. So uh, we're fast-forwarding to the early 1970s. Uh, Mammography became available, and really was the first time in which breast cancer and screening was discussed publicly. Uh, This is... (laughs) Who would this be? This would... This is Betty Ford, and this is Happy Rockefeller, first lady, second lady. uh, Both had mastectomies in the the mid-70s. So this was the first time that that screening and and breast cancer was really talked about in the public sphere. And now, fast forward to the present day, October, uh, you see a lot of these these posters. And what this does is it it perpetuates the cycle of, of fear... One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime and control. We can do something about it. These kinds of posters are actually here. Uh, Know your lemons, sit down and feel around. You may not be able to see this. It only takes a minute to check for bad seed. Seed and soil hypothesis. And uh, perhaps the the best champion of breast cancer screening was former Texas Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson, who, in response to uh, changes in screening guidelines at a Senate hearing wrote, or said, rather, everyone in this room, which was the uh, uh, the hearing, knows that, we, that by early detection we have saved lives. So it's an assumption. And then seven years later, she writes about the decision to change from age 40 to age 50. One life out of 1900 to be saved But the choice is not going to be yours, and it's going to be someone else that has never met you that doesn't know your family history. So who's taking away control? The government. Scientists are taking away control. So it's this perpetual cycle of fear and control. So that's how we got from the late 19th century to the current controversy. So given the current controversy, I want to talk about two studies. The first is a published study in Health Affairs, and the second is, this, uh, is, is looking at why there's progress. So the first study is looking at whether or <coughs> not there's progress in the value of breast cancer. And so what you see here on the horizontal axis is time, and on the vertical axis is is the mortality rate. And so that's a snapshot of of that wider 1930 to uh, 2010 period. And from 1975 to about 1990, breast cancer mortality rates were about stagnant, about at the level of 65 deaths per 100,000. And then after 1990, breast cancer mortality rates subsequently declined, almost linearly. And so between its high point and its low point, breast cancer mortality declined 24 deaths per 100,000, which is about a 35% reduction. So, is this reduction cost effective? That's what I'm going to look at next. So, the question was answered in a recent paper in Health Affairs entitled New Analysis Reexamines the Value of U.S. Cancer Care in the U.S. Compared to Western Europe that we published. So, we looked at 12 leading cancers, including breast, prostate, colon, and lung. And we compared the U.S. to all of Western Europe, 22 or so countries. We looked at 1982 to 2010, and we looked at the ratio of deaths uh, averted to quality-adjusted life years gained, and that allowed us to calculate the ratio uh, of these two, so the incremental cost of, of cancer care. So here again is the breast cancer mortality rate for the U.S., It started around 65. It remained relatively stagnant until about 1990, and then subsequently declined to about 45 deaths. Now, how does that compare to Western Europe? So we looked at uh, national cancer data from the World Health Organization. We standardized to the same population, and this is how the US compares to, to Western Europe. So the US is in black, and Western Europe is in gray. So for the early period, Western Europe actually had, the, had lower breast cancer mortality. Uh, both regions, both sets of countries peaked around <coughs> 1990, and then they both subsequently declined. But by the time we got up to 2010, US breast cancer mortality rates had declined faster and lower than the corresponding rates in, in Western Europe. <coughs> so we can actually calculate the number of deaths averted in this period, So when U.S. mortality rates are higher, that means that there are are more deaths, that there are excess deaths, because the mortality rate is higher. So in the period in which U.S. mortality rates were higher, that led to about 2,600 excess deaths. Afterwards, subsequently, the U.S. had lower mortality, which meant uh, deaths averted on the order of about 69,000. So when you sum them, 2,000 excess debts and 69,000 averted debts. That's about 67,000 averted debts total. <clears throat> so how much did we pay for those 67,000 ex- uh, averted debts? So here we're looking at the incremental cost per year. So uh, in 1982, we spent about $10 billion more billion And by 2010, we spent upwards of 16 more billion. dollars. So when you integrate that, when you look at the sum of, of all of that excess money, that's about $435 billion more dollars spent for those 67,000 debts averted. Oh, sorry, that's the
3: increment over what?
1: Yeah. It's the difference between the U.S. cost and Western Europe's costs. So the sum of, of that over time is how much more the US spent on breast cancer care over that time period. So we can take the ratio of those two numbers and and estimate the value. So here again are those 67,000 deaths averted. Those deaths averted were women of various ages. Some were as young as 50 and some were as old as 80. And so what we did is we, we calculated the life years that would have been saved. So counterfactually, a woman who would have died of breast cancer at 60 would have perhaps lived another 15 or 20 years. So she contributes 15 or 20 years of of life years. So this 67,000 deaths averted corresponds to 1.4 million life years saved at a cost of $435 billion which gives you a ratio of incremental cost to life-year saved of about $306,000. So uh, this is life years saved. Now we usually report uh, in cost-effectiveness studies quality-adjusted life-years saved, which values life at, at a different amount depending on, on age. So if we did the same calculation with quality-adjusted life-years, here's what we get. Again, this is the same 67,000 deaths averted, those 67,000 averted deaths have less quality adjusted life years because they're often happening at older ages. So a million quality adjusted life years saved that same incremental cost of 435 billion excess dollars, which gives you a cost effectiveness ratio of $402,000 per quality adjusted life year. So well above typically accepted cost-effectiveness thresholds of $100,000 or $150,000 per quality saved.
4: I'm sorry, can can I ask as well, can can you just give us a little overview of the, um, uh, what are the costs, uh, what does that consist of, and how (coughs) do you calculate those? Is that all of the health care for that individual? Is it screening? Is it treatment? What do those costs entail?
1: Yeah, so there's two different ways. How how did you estimate them? Are they just from the Medicare database, or where where are they from? Uh, So there's... Two ways we did it. Uh, so the, the way we did it, uh, because we wanted to match the costs of the Phillips and paper, is if you took U.S. healthcare expenditures, and you took ten percent of that U.S. healthcare expenditures, that's the amount that's spent on cancer, which matches what NCI calculates with its uh, SEER Medicare registry plus insurance data on the less than sixty-five year olds. Uh, so. Ten percent of U.S. healthcare expenditures is the U.S. cancer expenditures, and then we apportioned out the amount that's due to breast cancer by the the annual proportion of breast cancer incidents to total incidents.
4: And and what's the basis of the calculation of just overall U.S. healthcare expenditure? And how accurate is that?
1: <coughs> how accurate is the calculation of U.S. healthcare expenditure? Yeah, yeah. And
4: where does that come from? That- uh, it comes from
1: the. The source is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Okay. Uh, it's as valid as, as other macro government economic statistics. So I would, it's as valid as we have. I think what we just getting at probably is said
2: the, that the, uh, sort of the payments or, are just higher in the United States for these things. Like, people in Western Europe are getting the same treatment their breast cancer it isn't like they're you know somehow um, that that we're doing a whole bunch of new things or different things to the patients in the United States compared to the patients in Europe I don't think that's driving it's just that it's just that all of healthcare care in the u.s is more expensive right so why so, so like doctors get paid more you know the drug companies get paid more for the meds and right you know, it's the whole deal so so I guess if you I don't know what you're Point is trying to be at the end of this, but it isn't like we're, we're doing like more intensive care of people for breast cancer than they are in Europe. They're all getting surgery, they're getting chemotherapy, they're getting radiation therapy, just like they are here. It's just that everything costs more in the United States.
1: Yes, I would say it's a, it's a, a fair conclusion of why. It's not that there's no progress in the US. That's, there is progress, but that progress is about equal. So why is there equal progress? transnationally, and that's because all sets of countries are sharing in advancements in breast cancer treatment. Mm-hmm. Right. And those treatments, those chemotherapies agents are more expensive in the U.S.
2: But
4: the following up on Rick's question, what he's driving at, I think, is that then it's not the money that's driving the difference in mortality.
1: What's there's, there's very little difference in mortality. Just 67,000 deaths averted out of millions of women. So we're, we're not getting that much more benefit from <coughs> treatment. We're not averting that many more deaths. But we're paying a lot for it. Right, I of, I'm sorry, I think yeah, if you
4: looked at, so, for instance, one huge driver, and I, I don't know the specific numbers, um, but when you drive, as what Rick was testing, the cost of medications. So I, you know, I can tell you some of the newer biologics that have become available. Recetin's an example that's not so new, but several others are dramatically more expensive in the U.S. in comparison to Europe.
1: Right, upwards of, of twice the cost. Sure. Uh, some of them are,
4: you have a much much greater delta than twice the cost. Some of the newer agents. Um, but have you looked? that specifically, that would be interesting to look at. How much of a driver is
1: that? But we haven't quantified how much of the difference in cost was due, is due to differences in types of treatment, surgery versus chemotherapy versus radiation. Yeah.
2: I was also wondering about the, is there a quantification, and maybe you'll get to this, of the deaths averted they're then presumably going to be productive in, in the rest of their life that they wouldn't if they had died of breast cancer. And doesn't that offset some of the expense that goes into
0: saving those lives?
1: Yeah, so what's the perspective? Uh, so this is the value of, the, of cancer care. The societal perspective, right, they're contributing payroll taxes. They're also perhaps getting recurrence of cancer or having other medical costs. So it's a big open question of, yeah. of uh, what happens subsequently. Counterfactually, if the person hadn't died, if she hadn't died of breast cancer, <coughs> what would her economic life look like? So you so sort of
3: just to clarify, because I, I think where we're going here is a discussion of what it costs. So, um, did you say that look, you took the U.S. health care costs You figured out how much of that is for cancer, and then you said breast cancer represents ten percent of U.S. cancer, so ten percent of the cost can be attributed to breast cancer. Is that the way? Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that. Well,
1: it's not actually ten percent, but that's the the process. Okay,
3: but isn't that um, that sort of assumes that every case of cancer costs roughly the same
1: to treat?
0: Which is not true.
1: There's, of course, a, a wide distribution. Uh, on average, at a national level, if you took U.S. healthcare expenditures and took 10% of that and then apportioned out the representative amount of breast cancer based on the incident costs, you, match, you would match very closely what NCI calculates per patient. They have patient-level data uh, and you would match that because some patients are, are very inexpensive, and some patients have a successful surgery. They have successful surveillance. They may get cancer later. So, the cost-wise, they're they're very costly. So, uh, you can look at it either way: from a macro level, where you look at U.S. healthcare expenditure, or from a micro level, and you get about the same answer.
3: But do those? The way you calculate that, you said a couple of different things, and I'm not sure that I follow them. Is the cost of it, in in the kind of analysis that you chose to do, is the cost of a breast cancer patient the same as the cost of a leukemic? No. So somehow you've adjusted the number to reflect care for breast cancer.
1: The cost is proportional to the cost of, of breast cancer is proportional to breast cancer's share of all cancers.
3: Right. That's what I thought you said, and, and I'm saying that that <clears throat> seems to me be problematic because the cost of all cancers isn't similar.
1: Okay. So there's there's two things going on. There's at the population level how much that cancer costs, which is proportional to its share. And at the individual level, the cost varies a lot based on the kinds of treatments and how long that person lives. Those two approaches give you about the same answer for the national cost of cancer. Okay. So how does this $402,000 per quality adjusted life year compare to the other cancers that we studied? So in other words, what's the comparative value of breast cancer care? So on the x-axis, you're seeing the ratio of incremental cost in thousands of dollars per quality adjusted life year saved. So uh, here's breast cancer at about $400,000 per quality adjusted life year saved. The only other cancer that has a much higher ratio is prostate cancer, upwards of about $2 million per quality adjusted life year saved. In other words, we're spending a lot of money on prostate cancer care and getting very little gain in quality adjusted life years because there are very few deaths averted. So many cancers had at least a positive ratio, which means that there's some, uh, some potential benefit uh, to costs and, and qualities. And then there are other cancers, notably lung cancer, which actually had a slightly negative ratio. So what that means is that despite spending billions and billions of dollars more in lung cancer care, the US experienced excess lung cancer deaths. So I'm going to show you details of, of the three uh, cancers that I'll I'll show you details of lung, of prostate, and of colon. And then there are other cancers which, despite spending, again, lots and lots and lots more money, we're seeing very little benefit in terms of reductions in mortality. Many more excess cervical deaths than, than Western Europe. So let's focus in on, on prostate cancer that had a ratio of about $2 million per quality adjusted life year. Why? Well, the first reason is that it was a lot more expensive. So between uh, 1982 and 2010, the U.S. spent about $435 billion more in prostate cancer care. And uh, it wasn't linear. It peaked in certain years and then dropped down. And then here's what happened with lives saved. So from 1982 to about 1997, the U.S. lost lives compared to Western Europe because its mortality rate was higher. So it experienced about 12,000 excess deaths. After about 1997, U.S. prostate cancer mortality rates declined faster than those of Western Europe, leading to about 72,000 deaths averted. So when you take the sum of those, you get about 60,000 deaths averted. So if you took the ratio of its equivalent quality adjusted life years saved to that cost, you get the $2 million. So the key point here is that it's not that the U.S. isn't making progress against prostate cancer. It is. Right? These more, this, black, this black line is decreasing. And it's decreasing faster in Europe uh, after 1997. So it's not that the U.S. isn't making progress in prostate cancer. It's that the U.S. is making equal progress as Western Europe. Both sets of mortality rates are declining at about the same pace. And yet, we're spending a lot more money, which is why the the cost-effectiveness ratio is so high. Here's colon cancer. Over that same time period, the US spent about $326 billion more in colon cancer care. Now, here's something different. The US has always had, in this time period, a lower mortality rate, and that mortality rate is declining <coughs> a little bit steeper than that of Western Europe. So throughout the entire time period, the U.S. has averted colon cancer deaths on the order of 264,000 colon cancer deaths. So when you divide the equivalent uh, costs to the quality of just life you're saved, you get $110,000. So much more cost effective than breast and uh, than prostate And finally, here is lung. Lung surprised us because the ratio was negative, and we didn't expect it to be negative. So this didn't surprise us. Like all other cancers, the U.S. spends a lot more than Western Europe, $406 billion more for lung cancer care. But the U.S. has always had higher lung cancer mortality rates than Western Europe. If the U.S. has always had higher lung cancer mortality rates, that means the U.S. has always experienced excess deaths, about 1.1 million excess deaths. If
3: we hadn't spent that much more money, uh, is there any way to estimate how much higher our, compared to the deaths would be here? Yeah. Uh, In other words, would it be on the other side of the, uh, for the, some of these other
1: cancers? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I suppose another way to look at it. Uh, it without spending that excess money <clears throat>
4: <clears throat> Like for Preston.
1: Well uh, Without spending that excess money, this is the rate that you would get the Western Europe rates, Approximately. <laughs> I mean, presumably,
3: if we hadn't spent that money, we, may, we, we could have had many more deaths, maybe exceeding Uh, the European numbers for prostate and breast. This one's a little hard to explain, but is there any way to estimate that? Is that a a reasonable conclusion?
1: It's an interesting question. I think it would be a a complicated analysis. Uh, It's counterfactual. So in the absence of spending that money on lung cancer, what would have happened?
3: Mark? Doesn't this point out some logical challenge to the kind of analogy. I mean, this is a pretty harsh question, but we, I don't know if I understand Craig's question, but the the implication that, oh gee, if we didn't spend that money, we wouldn't have all these excess debts, strikes me as unlikely. I mean, I don't think that money is leading to so much bad surgery and so much bad treatment that therefore all these people wouldn't have died have now died from the investment of all this money, right? So that that's unlikely. Would you agree? Or- yeah, I, it,
1: it, I'm not taking the morbid interpretation. It's it's, know, it's, it's not if like if you
3: take that interpretation that not spending that money would have led to more uh, success, that not spending the money would have meant less death. Then if that's unlikely to be true, why is it likely to be? that by having spent a lot more money, there should be some expectation of what, what is it?
1: Decreased deaths. So this is the assumption that more is better. I, we spend a lot more. How come we're not seeing a lot better? And grammatically, that's not quite right. But more, better. It's, it's not the case with lung cancer. More, not better. Uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's a prime example of of this counter logic. Yeah. No, I, think, I think the
2: um, maybe one of the problems with the analysis okay, has to do with um, whether they're actually getting more treatment. Okay, So you're saying they're spending more money. But it's as if you have, say, a Mercedes-Benz and you buy it in London or you buy it in the United States. Maybe it's a lot more expensive here. You're still getting the same car. okay? And I think that's the problem, I think, or maybe potentially a problem with, with your analysis is that We're spending more money, but unless you can tell me that we're also giving a lot more treatment, okay, then we're not really doing more for patients than they are in Western Europe. We're just spending more money because things are more expensive here. So I think you're kind of saying that, oh, well, we're doing a whole lot more for lung cancer or for breast, but well, what is it that we're doing more of? Are we doing more operations, are they getting more radiation therapy, are they getting more chemotherapy? I don't think so. I think they're getting the same treatment, and it just costs more here.
1: So more than fifty percent of US lung cancer patients are diagnosed stage four. It's less than forty percent in England. So it might be that British lung cancer patients are getting more treatment because more is available to them.
2: Unless you can tell me like you know, again, unless you can tell me that the people are getting more treatment here, and that's why it's more expensive you know, or, or that's, that's why it's more expensive. If we're getting the same treatment, it's not like we're spending more and would expect them to get better, yeah. okay? I so mean, it's just it's so. more this expensive. Is the, I think the, the car analogy works kind of, so that, you know, again, if the car is just more expensive in the U.S., I'm not expecting it to go any faster or to do anything
1: else better. It's just that cars cost more in America. Yeah. There's two ways to have excess costs. The first is we're doing more. The second right. is we're doing the same, but that stuff costs more. Right. And we're seeing both of those here. And it sounds like you're saying it would be nice to Well, how do you know how time?
2: much of the $400 billion is, is, is is each? Right. That's, that's the issue. Yeah. Well, can you tell us that? Because I don't think we're doing that much more than, I don't think we're doing a whole lot more
1: in the, well, the compared to Europe. By the stage differences, we're actually doing less on average. Mm-hmm. Because there's, there's less you can do for stage four than for stage two. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're seeing costly progress in cancer care and in U.S. breast cancer care. And we've talked a lot about this. Let me just hit some of the high points. We're seeing a transnational pattern in mortality decline. That's likely the result of treatment, not screening. So in the U.S. and Europe, there's been widely adopted advancements in treatment. Uh, tamoxifen, breast conserving surgery with, with adjuvant radiation. Uh, it's likely not, this this common transnational pattern of breast cancer mortality decline is likely not due to screening for two reasons. One, screening didn't precede the decline in mortality. So for screening to be at least beneficial, screening ought to have preceded the decline in mortality, and it didn't. The second is, cross-nationally, countries with greater screening didn't see faster declines in mortality. So neither of those conditions are met, so we don't think this transnational pattern in mortality decline was due to screening. So
4: um, let me ask, why do you say, because a lot of experts in the breast cancer community would disagree a bit with those statements, but why do you say screening did not uh, precede the decline in mortality? Because uh, there's a big push and incremental uh, increase in screening in the 80s. And given that, in fact, the data you showed us are very consistent with screening being part of the decrease. Mortality, because if you have a big you know, in increase in screening use in, in the decade of the 80s, that would make sense. You would start to see a mortality impact
1: in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, l- let's hold on to that point. I can, I can show you visually where we think screening started picking up its impact on mortality. Uh, so, why do we think the U.S. has higher cost of breast cancer uh, than in Europe? There's more imaging done, uh, there's the high cost of drug development about $1.2 billion per approved drug. Uh, there's a monopoly position in, in oncology. If there are two drugs, it's not that the use of drug A precludes the use of drug B. What happens is that the use of drug A continues until there's no longer uh, any effect, and then there's a switch to drug B. So there's, there's this monopoly position, so there's no incentive for Pharmaceutical companies to, to compete with each other for the price of their oncologics. The Medicare Modernization Act of 2003 prevents Medicare from directly negotiating with pharmaceutical companies over the cost of, of oncologics. And there's a lack of generic equivalence. So, what happens is that protein bound paclitaxel gets replaced, uh, replaces paclitaxel. So, paclitaxel goes away and it's, it's just simply replaced by by the brand name after the patent expires. So let me get to the second question of why there is progress, why we think that there is progress in cancer, and what's contributing to it. So <clears throat> there's many ways to think about the costs. Let's, let's all, I think we can all agree that US cancer is more expensive, um, and yet there's progress. So here we're looking at life expectancy, So from 1975 to 2002, life expectancy increased of a 40-year-old diagnosed with breast cancer from 18 years to upwards of 30 years. So that's a 12.7-year gain in life expectancy, or about a 41% gain in life expectancy. Now, Is this life expectancy real, or is it artificial, this gain? Is the gain real or artificial? And if it's real, what's driving it? Is it screening, or is it treatment? uh, the question we're going to answer in this new work is what contributes to these gains? Uh, so what are the potential harms and benefits of early detec- of detection? Well, the, the clear benefit of, of detection is, is early detection. That's, the, that's what we think detection ought to do. But of course, there are either many spurious effects or harms of detection. There's the false negatives, the misdiagnoses, uh, a spurious Increase in survival due to length time or overdiagnosis bias, excess radiation. Same question with treatment. What are the potential benefits with treatment? What we hope in treatment, surgical treatment, chemotherapy, and radiation, is that it improves and extends survival. But it always it doesn't necessarily do that. Uh, there are many well-documented harms of treatment. There's complications from, from invasive procedures. There's overtreatment, there's toxicity from, uh, from chemotherapy and radiation therapy, reductions in quality of life, increased risk of competing mortality with, uh, with breast cancer treatment. So what will each factor do to uh, these, these three areas that we're looking at? Earlier detection will shift the stage of diagnosis earlier. We're not looking at the stage of diagnosis. We're going to look at the size of the tumor uh, as an unbiased proxy of stage, so we get away from um, the subjectivity of of staging. So early detection would shift the size distribution to the left. Improvements in cancer treatment would lower cancer mortality rates, but do do nothing to the size distribution or other cause mortality rates. Uh, And then improvements in the treatment of other diseases would do nothing to the size distribution or the cancer mortality rate, but lower the other cause mortality rate. So the data we're going to use are what's called incidence-based mortality rates from SEER. So we're gonna look at data of about 700,000 women diagnosed with, with breast cancer. We'll focus on their tumor size at diagnosis, the time of their death, and their cause of their death. And conservatively, we're assuming uh, a 10% level of overdiagnosis among the smallest tumors, those that are less than three centimeters. And we're going to take those overdiagnosed and length time biased tumors out of the mortality rate. We're going to take them out of the numerator. They're not going to count as a death. And we're going to take them out of the denominator. They're not going to be part of, of the exposure. So I'll just go over one example in the interest of time. Here's a woman who was diagnosed with a one to two centimeter tumor at time t. She lived all 10 years. And then, according to her death certificate, she died of breast cancer 12 years later. In our analysis, she doesn't count as a breast cancer death because her death occurred after 10 years. So we have this 10-year incidence-based window as a way to account and mitigate for, uh, for length-time bias. And then she... Uh, she only contributes exposure, uh, 10 years of exposure. So uh, briefly, without any equations, let me show you the math behind this. Let's consider two time points. And here you're looking at the distribution by size. So most tumors are less than one centimeter. The next high size is one to twos. And then a few of them are the two-plus <coughs> tumors. So nothing changed with, with size. Now let's look at changes in size-specific mortality rates. There was a decline in the smallest tumors uh, for 1 centimeter, for 1 to 2, and for even 2 plus with cancer. But nothing changed with all-cause mortality. So then we can calculate size-specific life expectancies, which is just a function of mortality rates. So life expectancy for the 1 centimeters increased between time 1 and time 2 because mortality decreased. Right? When life expectancy increases, that means mortality decreased. And then we can look at the overall life expectancy, which is just the weighted average of this life expectancy by size times its proportion. So that gain, which is the difference in the black bars, can't be due to differences in size, because size didn't change. This gain in life expectancy can't be due to changes in other-cause mortality, because other-cause mortality remains flat. This gain entirely has to be due to decreases in cancer-specific mortality rates. So that's our method. Now, of course, the reality is that all three of these components are changing. Early detection is shifting the size distribution, improvements in cancer mortality are changing cancer mortality rates, and improvements in medical care overall are changing competing mortality. So there's a math behind this uh, that decomposes all three components. So here are the inputs. Here are the incidence rates by size. Uh, And let's go through each one of them because there's a different story. So here's orange. It's less than one centimeters. The incidence rate for the smallest size tumor was pretty flat. And then around 1984, it started to increase rapidly, which might be the start of of your mid-80s screening. Now let's take, sorry these colors are so uh, flat, uh, hard to see. Here's two to three centimeters. It was also pretty flat, and then right around the mid-80s, went up and then stayed pretty stable. Same story with the, the one to two centimeters. The three and the five, the biggest tumors, they were pretty flat screening large, probably picked up the prevalent tumors. And then both of these incidence rates went back to their baseline levels. So instead of looking at incidence rates, I'm looking at the share of each size in that given year. So the share of one centimeter tumors grew. And it grew because one centimeter tumors increased in incidence more than the incidence of of bigger size tumors. So the share of one centimeter's increased, the share of one to twos increased, and the share of the biggest tumors, the three to fives and the five pluses, decreased. And they decreased because while the smaller tumors were increasing, these bigger tumors were flat. So they had less share of a bigger pie. Now what happened with mortality rates? With mortality rates, the biggest declines in mortality rates occurred for the biggest tumors. And this is the decline in mortality for the 5-centimeter tumors. The 3-5s to fives also declined. And then as the tumor sizes started getting smaller, the declines started getting more and more flat. And then the last component is what happens with competing mortality. And there's less variation in competing mortality among tumor sizes. They all declined, although less deeply, than cancer mortality. So let's decompose, let's do the math, and let's look at the gain in life expectancy. So under a 10% over-diagnosis level, between 1975 and 2002, there was about an 11-year gain in life expectancy for breast cancer patients at age 40. What contributed to that 11-year gain? Only about three of that was due to changes in the size of breast cancers. So what you're seeing, that red bar, is the sum of each of the size components. So it's this push and pull aggregate. There were only two, three or so of the 11-year gain was due to shifting the size distribution to the left. And the vast majority of that 11-year gain in life expectancy was due to improvements in treatment. So. The sum of these bars is the improvement due to breast cancer treatment, so about about eight and a half years, and then another one or so years was due to improvements in other cause mortality. So, 11-year gain in life expectancy and treatment is largely responsible for that 11-year gain. Earlier detection, which changes the size distribution, didn't contribute that much, just about 20% 20% of the gain. So in this controversy about whether or not screening makes any difference, screening and early detection does contribute to the gain in life expectancy at the, about the 20% level. So, no, It's an interesting, interesting analysis.
4: Although, um, I'm not sure I certainly agree with your conclusion about screening and the problem one of the issues, I think, with these sorts of studies is that there's no granularity to the data, right? So you're making some broad assumptions about modeling <coughs> and assuming screening doesn't help when, in fact, you know, there's a substantial possibility that, for instance, the if you look at the medium size of the cancer pre- and post-screening, it may have gone from, you know, one centimeter to eight millimeters, something like that. I'm sort of making numbers up, but what I'm making the point is you haven't eliminated the possibility that even in a less than one centimeter, the median size distribution of detected cancers could very well be substantially less now than it was prior to screening. So, um, And I think this is part of why a lot of experts think you know there's a combination of both screening and treatment that has led to the
1: improvement in overall work. Right. And so what this work does is it quantifies each one of those contributions. And what we're arguing is that it's not that screening is useless. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying is that at the national level, right. screening contributes about twenty percent to the overall gain in survival.
4: But so the point I'm making is coming to that conclusion by lumping together everybody with a less than one centimeter cancer, right? And saying there was no change in that group from I guess, if I understand correctly, from you know the uh, era before screening to a later time point, and, and I guess. What my question is: How do you know that there isn't an overall change in that size distribution <coughs> of cancers from, you know, from from one centimeter to nine millimeters, which which you know, in a huge data set like this, a seer data set, could have an impact on on, on all cause or a breast cancer specific mortality?
1: Yeah, so we could we could further subset the less than one centimeters. They also include the the DCISs and the atypias and the, the nodules with, with a, a measurable diameter. Um, so, so,
4: uh, so this is not just invasive breast cancer? It
0: also it's, invasive.
1: it's also non-invasive. It, it includes DCIS and the tibia. That's sort of another problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, we, it's not a problem. It's So much of the increase in the less than one centimeter incidence could be DCIS. due to... True. To this uh, this rise in DCIS, that would be that would contribute to an artificial gain in life expectancy.
4: Right, right. Because this, but that's
1: not right. what, that that's yeah. not what's happening here. The DCISs, the vast majority of DCIS DCISs, uh, would survive the ten years. Right. So their less than one centimeter mortality rates would be pretty flat, which is what we saw. Okay. So by including the DCISs, and atypias, we're, we're showing what, what detection is, is contributing.
4: But you also, if I understand correctly, you limited your analysis to 10 years. Is that
1: right? The window in which death could occur, for us to count it as a breast cancer have, death. Have you looked at,
4: you know, did it change if you uh, moved it up to 15 or 20
1: years? Yeah, so we varied the window. We get the same substantive conclusions.
4: Okay.
1: The levels, of course, change. But the, the substantive conclusion remains the same. And just in the last slide, you know, why did we pick 10% as the overdiagnosis level? Uh, that's the data from the Malmer trial in Sweden. There was an estimate of about 10% uh, overdiagnosis. So let's vary the level of overdiagnosis from zero, a highly unlikely level of, of absolutely no overdiagnosis, to the randomized trial level of 10% all the way out to 32%. Uh, the Blair and Welch estimate uh, based on the US. And what you see here is for any level of overdiagnosis, the vast majority of the gain in survival, which would be the top line, the sum of all these, is due to improvements in breast cancer mortality, improvements in treatment, next by changes in tumor size, so the result of earlier detection, followed by improvements in other cause mortality, so improvements in the care of, of other cancers. So even at a very very high overdiagnosis level, um, what we're finding is that uh, the gains in life expectancy, the true gains are somewhere between 10 and 11 years between 1975 <clears throat> and 2002. And advancements in treatment contribute about 60 to 70 percent of those gains. Earlier detection contributes about 16 to 30 percent, and improvements in other cause mortality contributes about 11 to 12 percent. Uh, so why does this work matter beyond just a historical look? The vast majority of historical, recent historical improvements in breast cancer mortality and survival have been due to treatment, and treatment's expensive. So it's likely that future progress will continue to be expensive. And U.S. breast cancer care is even more expensive than similar levels of, of high-quality care in Europe. So what can be done about it? Instead of a fee-for-service model and no negotiation, it could be that uh, oncology pricing is done through value-based reimbursement and pricing. Over time, there might be a cultural shift in this control of of messaging that perhaps less is better. The uh, the generic oncology drug could be perhaps just as good as, as the new brand name. And changing the FDA approval process once the FDA approves an oncologic in the US, it's therefore covered by Medicare. That's not the same case in much of Europe. In France, only about 40 or 50 percent of the same number of drugs that, was, that were approved in the, FD, in the US by the FDA were, were also approved uh, in France. So, just ending with this again to, to show you that varying the level of, of overdiagnosis, you still get. Substantial gains in life expectancy, and those gains are primarily due to advancements in treatment. Other questions?
0: Okay. So um, I think for breast and colon, you know, the comparative studies between Europe and the U.S. seem um, reasonable because the incidence rates are fairly similar. But for lung cancer, it the be. You know, are different. Won't that
1: also uh, the of I'm not sure that you that. Yeah, so the, the incidence rates are different and the smoking rates are also different. Right. European smoking rates were higher and continue to be higher than U.S. smoking rates. So why are lung cancer mortality rates higher in the U.S.? Part of it has to do with, with the stage distribution of lung cancer. The U.S. has a a stage distribution that's more to the right, more to advanced stages than than in Europe. It might be that the culture of smoking is different. Yeah, or the the intensity, the frequency. Smoking is different. I mean, I was
4: going to ask that question. But more simply, does that worry you about just the data itself? Because I I noticed that, that the mortality was dramatically lower for lung cancer in Europe but my naive sense is that the incidence of smoking is still dramatically higher.
0: Well, it really depends, right? Because women in southern Europe don't smoke
1: as much. So you know. Yeah. Just... So another way to look at this is that the pace of decline in U.S. lung cancer mortality rates is much steeper than the pace of decline in Europe, in part because of historic and current reductions in, in male U.S. cigarette smoking. So in the next 25 years... Mortality rates could very easily cross over.
4: But those numbers of those mortality uh, curves you showed for several decades weren't, if I'm remembering correctly, they were substantially lower for the U.S. Uh, I mean, for for, for,
1: for for Europe, right? Thank you very
0: much.
1: Thank you.